While much valuable Christian literature from prior centuries has been republished in recent years, the particular Baptists have been largely ignored. Yet, their contributions in the areas of biblical exegesis, theology, history, and practical Christian living have much to offer today's church. The particular Baptists have always demonstrated a firm and faithful commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, its proclamation to all the world, and the inspiration, inerrancy, and absolute authority of all of Scripture. We at Particular Baptist Heritage Books desire to champion this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, word-centered legacy by producing high-quality, handcrafted, hard-cased editions of Particular Baptist works, which we hope will endure for generations to come. Particular Baptist Heritage Books is a nonprofit publishing ministry founded in connection with a local church. With the help from an advisory board consisting of Calvinistic Baptist pastors and scholars, we seek to preserve the history, theology, and relevancy of our particular Baptist forebears by publishing and promoting their most important literary works. Our mission is to glorify God and to strengthen His church by furnishing Christians with the very best of the particular Baptist literary heritage. And so we invite you, come and deepen your Baptist roots at www.particularbaptistbooks.com www.particularbaptistbooks.com following chronicle of Baptist persecution under Charles II in England is taken from a book called Baptist History, from the foundation of the Christian Church to the close of the 18th century, by J.M. Cram, 1868, return of Charles II and James II. We are now entering upon a dark time. The reigns of Charles II and James II were inglorious in all respects. In religion, the first was a hypocrite, the second a bigot. The former was traitorous to British interests for the sake of his pleasure and his pride. The latter was willing to offer up British freedom on the altar of the papacy, martyrdom in various forms, gain fresh laurels, while well, they occupied the throne of which they were utterly unworthy. Charles II had pledged his royal word at Veda before his restoration, that no man should be disquieted or called in question for differences of opinion and manners of religion, which did not disturb the peace of the kingdom, end quote. Like a true son of his father, he broke his promise. It was doubtless given with a mental reservation which a Jesuit would applaud. The Savoy Conference, like the Hampton Court Conference and the reign of James I, was a mere sham. The design was first to cheat, and then to insult. The Episcopalians and Presbyterians who attended the conference held a number of meetings and partially discussed the points at issue, but without any good result. No Baptists were there. The conference was opened on April 15, 1661, and closed July 25th. The religious condition of the kingdom was very peculiar, ignorant, and scandalous. 
Ministers had been ejected by Holstel during the Commonwealth and under the Protectorate. Their successors were a motley group. The majority were Episcopalians, but there were many Presbyterians, some Independents, and a few Baptists. A large number of the Presbyterians would have submitted to the restored establishment if they had been allowed to retain discretionary power with reference to portions of the ritual. They particularly objected to wearing a surplice, to the sign of the cross and baptism, to kneeling at the Lord's Supper, to the indiscriminate administration of the Lord's Supper to sick persons, to the form of absolution, to the language of the burial service, and to the declaration required of all clergymen that there was nothing in the common prayer book, the book of ordination, or the 39 articles contrary to the word of God. But the temper of the times was rigid and fierce. The hierarchical party, flushed with victory and confident of complete success, refused all consideration. They would not abate a jot, except in manners of the most trivial importance. A few verbal alterations were made in the liturgy. A new edition of the prayer book was published, containing forms of prayer for the 30th of January and the 29th of May with other additions, and a parliament subservient to the wishes of the king and the priesthood passed the Act of Uniformity, which went into operation August 24, 1662. You were now prepared for a tale of woe. The history of our denomination from 1660 to 1688 is not so much a history of progress as of endurance. Persecution commenced immediately after the king's return. The clergymen ejected during the Commonwealth and the Protectorate, with the exception of such as had justified the late king's murder, or declared against infant baptism, were restored to their livings by Act of Parliament. Though the High Commission Court was not re-established, it was presumed that the old laws of Elizabeth were enforced again, and magistrates in every part of the kingdom were eager to execute them. The Baptists saw the storm coming and took measures accordingly. They asked for no indulgence, no emoluments. They sought no office. All they wanted was freedom of worship. They recognized but one course of action and things civil. They were prepared to be obedient subjects. With these views, he approached the throne. First, a petition was presented to the king July 26, 1660 setting forth the sufferings inflicted on the churches in Lincolnshire. We have been much abused, they said. As we pass in the streets, and as we sit in our houses, being threatened to be hanged if but heard praying to our Lord and our own families, and disturbed in our soul waiting upon him by uncivil beating at our doors and sounding of horns, yea, we have been stoned when going to our meeting. The windows of the place where we have met have been struck down with stones. Yea, we have been taken as evildoers and imprisoned when peaceably met together to worship the Most High and the use of his most precious ordinances. And as if all this were too little, they have to fill up their measure very lately indicted many of us at the session, and intend, as we are informed, to impose on us the penalty of twenty pounds each for not coming to hear such men as they provide us. Accompanying this was a confession of faith drawn up by Thomas Grantham, said to be owned and approved by more than 20,000. 
Another petition entitled A Humble Petition and Representation of the Suffering to Several Peaceable and Innocent Subjects, called by the name of Anabaptists, inhabitants in the county of Kent, now prisoners in the jail of Maidstone, for the testimony of a good conscience dated January 25, 1661, not only represented the case of the prisoners, but of their brethren in the county of Kent, who were already suffering severely. These petitions produced no favorable results. The king, aid, replied to the first, quote, that it was not his mind that any of his good subjects who lived peaceably should suffer any trouble on account of their opinions and point of religion, end quote. And he made fair promises, but the work of violence still went on. Some of the principal Baptist ministers were lodged in prison during the year 1660. In November of that year, John Bunyan entered Bedford Jail, which was destined to be his abode for twelve years. In every part of England, power was leagued with cruelty and lawlessness for the extermination of freedom. The ridiculous affair called Venner's Rebellion occurred on the 7th of January, 1661. Thomas Venner preached in a small meeting house in Coleman Street, London. He warmed his admirers with passionate expectations of a fifth universal monarchy under the personal reign of King Jesus upon earth, and that the saints were to take the kingdom themselves. On the day above mentioned, about fifty of them marched out of their meeting house well armed with the resolution to subvert the present government or die in the attempt. In the tumult that followed, they lost about half their number. The remainder surrendered. Venner and one of his officers were hanged before their meeting house door. January 19th, and a few days after, nine more were executed in diverse parts of the city. A proclamation was issued the day after the insurrection prohibiting all meetings of Baptists, Quakers, and Fifth Monarchy men for religious worship, unless in the parish churches or in private houses, and then limited to the persons there inhabiting. The reason assigned was that the parties above mentioned had met under religious pretexts, but in reality for treacherous purposes, and the insurrection gave a plausible color to the proceeding. But the proclamation, though not issued till after the rebellion, had been ordered five days before, and the rebellion was eagerly laid hold of in justification of the act which was manifestly an unauthorized stretch of power. That, however, gave little concern to Charles II, or his unscrupulous advisers. The document was a characteristic specimen of Stuart knavery and of audacity. The Baptists hastened to disclaim all sympathy with Venner. A humble apology of some commonly called Anabaptists, in behalf of themselves, and others of the same judgment with them, with her protestation against the late wicked and most horrible treasonable insurrection and rebellion, signed by thirty ministers and others, at ahead of whom were William Kiffin and Henry Dinn, was presented to the king the day after the outbreak. But none of their number were comprised, and Venner himself had declared that if he succeeded, the Baptists should know that infant baptism was an ordinance of Jesus Christ. Two publications were issued in 1661. The objects of both were the same, namely, to establish the iniquity of persecution, 
to claim for the Baptists the rights of religious freedom, and to declare their willingness as loyal subjects to obey the king and his officers in all things lawful. The first was entitled, A Plea for Toleration of Opinions and Persuasions and Manners of Religion Differing from the Church of England. It was written by John Sturgeon, a member of the baptized people. The reason against persecution are concisely given and are expressed in a bold, nervous style. The second pamphlet was entitled Zion's Groans for Her Distress, Her Sober Endeavors to Prevent Innocent Blood, and so on. The names of seven Baptist ministers are appended to the epistle to the reader. They were all sufferers as well as laborers. One of them, Joseph Wright, spent no less than 20 years in prison for the truth's sake. The others were Thomas Monk, who labored in Buckinghamshire, George Hammond and William Jeffrey in Kent, Francis Stanley in Northamptonshire, William Reynolds in Lincolnshire, and Francis Smith. It is not likely that King saw these or any other publications in which the principles of the Baptists were explained and advocated nor is it probable he had seen them that they would have induced him to change his policy. Immediately after Venner's insurrection, Hansard Knowles and many more were apprehended and lodged in Newgate and other London prisons. About 400, says Crosby, were crowned into Newgate, besides many more in the other prisons belonging to the city and parts adjacent. Vavasor Powell, then preaching in Wells, was treated in the same manner and many of his brethren in the principality shared his fate. Throughout the kingdom, the Baptists were exposed to outrage. They have been held from their peaceable habitation, says John Sturgeon, and thrust into prison. Almost in all counties in England, and many are still detained to the utter undoing of themselves and families. And most of them are poor men, whose livelihood under God depends upon the labor of their hands so that they lie under a more than ordinary calamity, there being so many thrust into little rooms, especially in the city of London, where the Lord Mayor crowds them very close together, that it has been observed. The jailkeepers have complained that they have had too many guests. And while they suffer there, some of their wives and tender babies want bread at home. The execution of John James was a horrible illustration of royal malice. John James was the Sabbatarian Baptist. His meeting house was in Bolstrick Alley, Whitechapel, London. On the 19th of October, 1661, he was dragged from his pulpit and committed to Newgate on the charge of uttering treasonable words against the king. The principal witness against him was one Tipler, a journeyman pipe-maker, a man whose character was so well known that the magistrate before whom Mr. James was taken to receive his deposition unless some other witness would corroborate it. Others were found who confirmed Tipler's testimony, but one of them afterwards confessed that he had sworn against Mr. James he knew not what. In fact, there can be little doubt that the witnesses were suborn, probably bribed, to commit perjury. There is a more reason to believe this, because when the lieutenant of the tower read the information laid against Mr. James in the presence of his congregation and asked them how they could hear such doctrines, they all replied that they never heard such words, as they shall answer it before the Lord, and they durst not lie. But the death of the victim was predetermined. 
It was no difficult manner to procure a verdict against him. He was tried and convicted on the 19th of November, and sentenced the next day to be hanged, drawn, quartered. So flagrant was the injustice that his wife was advised by her friends to present a petition to the king for his life, setting forth the facts which I have mentioned, and entreating his majesty's inner position. But they had miscalculated. Charles treated the heartbroken woman with gross brutality. With some difficulty, she met the king and presented him with the paper, acquainting him with who she was, to whom he held up his finger and said, Oh, Mr. James, he is a sweet gentleman. But following him for some further answer, the door was shut against her. The next morning she attended again, and an opportunity soon presenting. She implored his majesty's answer to her request, and then replied that he was a rogue and should be hanged. One of the lords attending him asked her of whom she spake. The king answered of John James, That rogue, he shall be hanged, yea, he shall be hanged. On the 26th of November, Mr. James was dragged on a hurdle after the manner of traitors from Newgate to Tyburn, the place of execution. His behavior under those awful circumstances was dignified and Christian. In his address to the multitude, Referring to his denominational sentiments, he said, I own the title of a baptized believer. I own the ordinances and appointments of Jesus Christ. I own all the principles in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. He charged his friends to continue their religious assemblies at all risks. His closing exhortations were remarkably solemn and impressive, reminding the people of the days of the old martyrs. This is a happy day, said one of his friends. I bless the Lord, he replied, it is so. When all was ready, he lifted up his hands and exclaimed with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so he died. His quarters were placed over the city gates, and his head was set upon a pole opposite the meeting house in which he preached the gospel. I have mentioned the act of uniformity. It received a royal assent on the 19th of May and went into operation on the 24th of the August following. By this act, five things were required of all ministers and in possession of livings as essential to their continuance in the establishment. 1. Reordination if they had not been episcopally ordained before. Number 2. A declaration of unfeigned assent to consent to all and everything contained in the Book of Common Prayer administration of the sacraments and other rites and ceremonies of the church, a new and corrected edition of which was then published, but which great numbers of the clergy could not possibly see before the time specified, affirming that there was nothing in it contrary to the word of God, with the promise to use the prescribed form in no other. Number three, an oath of canonical obedience objection to the bishop. Number four, abjuration of the solemn league and covenant. And number five, a declaration of the unlawfulness of taking up arms against the king and government upon any pretense whatsoever. The interval that elapsed between the time when the act was passed and the day on which it was to take effect was a period of anxious suspense both to the people and their ministers. It was a trial of character. Some came to an immediate decision and left their livings before the appointed day. Others waited till the time had expired, 
And when at length the 24th of August came, they were found more than 2,000 worthy, learned, pious ministers ready to say, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they acted on the principle, regardless of consequences, they sacrifice all to truth and to God, and cast themselves on providence for supply and defense, exhibiting to the world and the future ages the noble example of disinterested virtue and conscientious integrity. To the ejected ministers stand the names of Richard Baxter, John Howe, but they were left without any physical means of subsistence. No provision was made for them. No mercy was shown to them. On the contrary, one persecuting decree was followed by another, and the governing power seemed only to be engaged in racking their brains to devise some new method of vexing and tormenting their more worthy fellow countrymen. On the list of the ejected ministers stand the names of Richard Baxter, John Howe, Joseph Allain, John Owens, Stephen Charnock, John Flavel, and many more, whose writings are still rendering service to the cause of God. About 30 of the ejected belonged to the Baptist denomination. The Church of England sustained a blow from that ejectment, from which he has scarcely yet recovered. Her best men were driven away. Uniformity was the idol set up, and all who would not bow down to it were sacrificed without mercy. The power was heavy on the nonconformists in every part of England. In Buckinghamshire, the persecution raged with intolerable fierceness. So numerous were the prisoners that the magistrates were obliged to hire two large houses for their accommodation, the county jail being too small. On one occasion in 1664, the Baptist ministry of Alsbury and eleven of his congregation were seized among whom two were women. They were placed before the justices at the quarter session, and advantage was taken of the 35th of Queen Elizabeth to require them either to conform to the Church of England and take the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, or to abjure the realm. And they were told that if they would not do either, they would be declared guilty of felony, and sentence of death would be passed on them. Unawed by this prospect, they replied that as they could not comply with the requisition, they threw themselves on the mercy of the court, on which they were sentenced to be hanged and sent back to jail to the day of execution. The sentence would have been executed had not measures been promptly taken to lay the case before the king and obtain his interference. The son of the condemned persons hastened to London, and by the assistance of William Kiffin, procured an interview with the Lord Chancellor, who immediately proceeded to the king. Implacable as Charles had proved himself to be in John James' case, he saw that the wholesale murder contemplated at Alsbury would bring his government into disrepute. It might stir up resentment not easily to be appeased. He was willing enough to worry his subjects into submission, or at least to attempt to do so, by confiscation in the dungeon. But the thought of sacrificing twelve lives at once to the demon of intolerance was too shocking even for Charles II. A reprieve was placed in the hands of the applicant, and in Exodus days his majesty's pardon was produced by the presiding judge and the prisoners were released. Let me now give an instance of interference with the freedom of the press. Benjamin Keach, a Baptist minister, 
wrote a small book for children entitled The Child's Instructor, or a new and easy primer. In a catechetical portion of the book, Baptist sentiments were inculcated. It was affirmed that believers, for godly men and women only, who could make a confession of their faith and repentance should be baptized. The personal reign of the Savior on earth for a thousand years, held at the time by some Baptists, was taught, and which was peculiarly offensive. Mr. Keach said that Christ's true ministers have not their learning and wisdom from men, or from universities or human schools, for human learning, arts, and sciences are not essential to the making of a true minister, but only the gift of God which cannot be bought with silver or gold. And also, as they have freely received the gift of God, so they do freely administer. They do not preach for hire, for gain, or filthy lucre. They are not like false teachers who look for gain from their quarters, who eat the fat and clothe themselves with the wool, and kill them that are fed, but not into their mouths they prepare war against. Also, they are not lords over God's heritage. They rule them not by force and cruelty, neither have they power to force and compel men to believe and obey their doctrine but are only to persuade and entreat. Thus is the way of the gospel as Christ taught them, in quote. As he was indicted at the Assizes, the language of the indictment may amuse the reader, quote, Thou art here indicted by the name of Benjamin Keach of Winslow in the county of Bucks, for that thou, being a seditious, heretical, and schismatical person, evilly and maliciously disposed, and disaffected to his majesty's government of the Church of England, it's maliciously and wickedly on the first day of May in the sixteenth year of the reign of our sovereign lord the king. Write, print, and publish. A cause to be written, printed, and published. One seditious and venomous book entitled The Child's Instructor, or A New and Easy Primer, were entertained by way of question and answer these damnable positions contrary to the Book of Common Prayer and the Liturgy of the Church of England in quote. The trial took place on October 9th, 1664. Chief Justice Hyde, afterwards Lord Clarendon, presided and conducted himself with a malignity wholly unbefitting his office. Under his direction, a verdict of guilty was recorded, and the judge then proceeded to pass sentence in the following terms. Quote, Benjamin Keach, you were here convicted for writing, printing, and publishing a seditious and schismatical book for which the court's judgment is this, and the court doth award, that you shall go to jail for a fortnight without bail or main prize, and the next Saturday to stand upon a pillory at Alsbury in the open market for the space of two hours from eleven of the clock to one, with a paper upon your head with this inscription. For writing, printing, and publishing a schismatical book entitled The Child's Instructor, or a new and easy primer, and the next Thursday to stand in the same manner and for the same time in the market of Winslow, and there your book shall be openly burnt before your face by the common hangman in disgrace of you and your doctrine, and you shall forfeit to the king's majesty the sum of twenty pounds, and shall remain in jail until you find sureties for your good behavior and appearance at the next assizes, there to renounce your doctrine to make such public submission as shall be enjoined you in quote. The punishment of the pillory was abolished by Act of Parliament in the year 1837. The instrument so-called was an upright frame placed on a scaffold. 
upon which the offender stood, his head appearing through one hole of the frame, fixed in two others, and his punishment was generally reserved for persons guilty of perjury and other infamous crimes. The mob were accustomed to pelt them with rotten eggs or various kinds of filth, and even with stones and brick brats, so that death sometimes ensued. To such an exposure, the Lord Chief Justice of England delivered up a worthy minister of the gospel. This sentence was duly carried into execution, and the sheriff, who was himself a fierce opposer of the truth, took care that the judge's direction should be obeyed to the very letter. It was a market day at Aylesbury. The town was thronged. People flocked there from all parts of the country to see the new and strange spectacle. But though many of them were prepared to deride and sneer, the usual expressions of popular indignation were lacking. Before this, the pillory had been reserved for the vilest criminals, but Mr. Keach was a good man and a preacher of the gospel. They could not find it in their hearts to pelt him. Precisely at eleven o'clock, he was placed in the pillory. Many friends attended him and stood around the instrument of torture for the purpose of sympathy and encouragement. And there also stood his wife, and frequently spoke in vindication of her husband, and of the principles for which he suffered. A true help me. Good people, said he, I am not ashamed to stand here this day with this paper on my head. My Lord Jesus was not ashamed to suffer on the cross for me, and it is for his cause that I made a gazing stock. It is not for any wickedness that I stand here, but for writing and publishing his truth. No, exclaimed an Episcopal clergyman who was standing by. It is for writing and publishing errors. Sir, replied Mr. Keach, can you prove them to be errors? He would have answered, but he was too well known by the multitude. One told him of his being pulled drunk out of a ditch. Another upbraided him with being lately found drunk under a haycock. At this, all the people fell to laughing and turned their diversion from the sufferer in the pillory to the drunken priest, insomuch that he hastened away with the utmost disgrace and shame. When the uproar had subsided, the voice from the pillory was heard again. Having somehow slipped one of his hands out of the hole, he took his Bible from his pocket and said, Take notice that the things which I have written and published and for which I stand here this day a spectacle to men and angels are all contained in this book. The jailer snatched the book from him and replaced his hand in the hole. Still the voice came from the pillory. A great concern for souls was that which moved me to write and publish those things for which I now suffer, and for which I could suffer far greater things than thee. It concerns you, therefore, to be very careful. Otherwise it will be very sad with you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, for we must all appear before his tribunals. The officers interposed, and he was compelled to be silent for a time. But again he ventured, Oh, did you but experience the great love of God and the excellencies that are in him, that would make you willing to go through any suffering for his sake. And I do account it the greatest honor that ever the Lord was pleased to confer upon me. The sheriff was furious and declared that he should be gagged if he did not hold his tongue. So he refrained from speaking, yet he could not forbear uttering these few words. This one yoke, Christ, which I can experience this easy to me in a burden which he does make light. 
When the two hours had expired, he was relieved, and blessed God with a loud voice for his great goodness to him. That day week, he was exposed to the same indignity in Winslow, where he lived and bored with equal patience and manliness. There also his book was publicly burned, according to the Sutton. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You are listening to the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary.